0: Good morning. It's great to be back with you. I know you're wondering what's in this. It looks like a James Bond case. (laughs) Give me a moment while I just uh, set this up. I've been looking into quite a number of Greek terms, so um, I'm not trusting everything to my memory. Well, it's truly a pleasure to be with you again. Um, In the meantime, or in the time since I've been here, We've had the privilege, Lucy and I, of welcoming and receiving Peter and Charlotte in our home for several days last year, and I was glad for that for a number of reasons. Um, The the pleasure of their company was truly uh, a delight for us. We went up to the city of Santa Fe in New Mexico, and uh, he saw he actually saw the place where the cowboys roamed. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is the fact that whenever you come to someone's home and you're a guest in their home, you get to know them. You get to know them very well. And, uh, bo- and it works both ways. And um, I was glad for that because uh, to some I am almost an, an enigma, uh, without uh, a place, sort of like a floating entity, uh, but for them to see me at home, um, in in um, in all the hours of the day, and to travel with us, uh, and to to actually see, test the validity of who we are, um, was was quite quite lovely, quite beneficial. Now. It is true that, uh, that this is a lighthouse um, and God chose the lighthouse in the prior season to break traditions. And I have the greatest regard for the Snamans who have labored before. You broke traditions at no small expense to you personally. And I I do want to here at the beginning of this series to honor you. You were and you have been a lighthouse. And it's not any surprise to you that because you've been faithful with that which was given to you, God means to give you more. It's a principle. Now, being given more is always a challenge because we, if we're not careful, we identify ourselves by what God did. And there's a very good reasons for doing that because we saw the Lord when He was doing those things. Clear and obvious confirmation that we were in the right in the path of what was right the mistake that any of us will make and i'm not in any way suggesting either directly or obliquely that the snaymans made a mistake but i'm saying that the mistake that all of us can make is to become to identify god through the ways of things he used to do So, uh, And by the way, yes, it is true that the Cape Town series, as it's come to be known now, and this is the third of the Cape Town series, uh, apparently it's being given a worldwide audience. So I'm, uh, the things I'm saying here, I'm saying with complete cognition that it's to an audience beyond this audience here today so you you will hear me say things and reference things that have that are intentionally designed to have um, a global reach uh, apparently the website um, that uh, on which these series are put has been uh, um, well visited and uh, i run into people all the time or have people send me letters saying They've downloaded the series, they've studied them, they teach them to groups all over. And so uh, this this is a a time when these messages, though they are presented locally, I believe they represent what God is saying in the earth today. And a foundation that builds upon what God has done previously with an eye toward what God is now doing and what God will continue to do. With that in mind, I've, I've prepared in a fashion um, that is somewhat unusual. I, I've always studied the scriptures, but I found myself in the last couple of years, two and a half years since I was here, digging out things. Mining. I've been involved in a very serious mining operation. And uh, I want to share with you uh, some of the things that have been revealed. Uh, And and for me personally, in these last couple of years, I've been taken to a very different level of understanding uh, of the things of God, but also it is the nature of God to work the things he has shown you into you. Because the intention of God always is to become incarnate. Because he created man as the vehicle by which the invisible God would become visible. Therefore, incarnation is an absolutely essential perspective that Uh, by which God, God, the Spirit of God, invades the persons of humankind for the express purpose of revealing the character and the nature of God. Now, that... ...order to process... And so what I want to do at the outset is to lay out um, something of an overarch uh, in this first session and I will quickly move to certain definitions that uh, I wish to put in place because I will refer to them repeatedly as we look to how are the things of God administrated in the earth because God is not intent on having a relationship just with the individual because the sum total of God's relationship with us is circumscribed in a corporate man known as Christ, a many-membered body. He's not referred to in that respect the focus is not upon the, the human Jesus, but the spirit that Jesus carried in the earth for the purpose of doing the will of God. The body was prepared so that he could do the will of God. That's according to Hebrews. A body you have prepared for me, as it's written about me in the scrolls. I come to do your will, O God. In fact, in the appropriateness of time, when the scroll was rolled out, in fact, the word for scroll is the word for knob. In the, in the book of the scrolls, it's the it's word for a knob, like a doorknob. So when you turn the doorknob, you would read from, from left to right, so you would turn the doorknob, or the knob at the end of the scroll, uh, with with the, with the left hand, and it would roll out what had been hidden in the scroll, until it came to that part of the scroll that contained the life of Christ to come into the earth. And by the way, and parenthetically, the scroll contains you. So as it's rolled out, it will reveal a spot in the scroll where your name is written. And that means this is your time in the earth to fulfill the other things that are written in the scroll for that time. In the knob of the scroll, in the book of the scrolls, it's written about me, a body you have prepared for me, so I have come to do your will, O God. He didn't come before because it was written in the scroll. That's why when he came to the synagogue and he, and he took the scroll, he read from the scroll precisely what the purpose for him invading a body was in coming into the earth. To set the captives free, to proclaim the year of liberty. He had come to fulfill that which was written about him. So that in heaven there was a transaction, and in the earth there was a matching transaction. This is the tautology of Scripture. This is how the scriptures leave no wiggle room. But these things cannot be understood purely by the carnal mind, they're designed to be understood by a mind controlled by the Spirit of God. So to the natural man, these things are foolish. But to the spiritual man, it's actually the the light, the signpost that the Word is to our feet, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I understand, my beloved brethren, that we're living in a time when there's, Great movement in the earth as it follows the choreography of heaven. And because of that, all manner of things are being made new. The scriptures are the same. But when we were children, we thought as children. We understood as children and we acted as children. But the same scriptures, you don't need to come up with new scriptures, the same scriptures take on a depth of understanding that is suitable for the one who is mature. When you're children, the understanding of the scriptures is domesticated. It, it, is, it is like milk, so as you would say milk. <laughs> that's, that's milk. And and it's easily uh, assimilatable in the digestive system of a child. But the same scriptures can be as meat. When they are meat, they take on a different characteristic. Scripture as meat as milk is domestic. It's easy. It, it requires no depth of understanding. Scripture, as meat, is the revelation of mysteries. It's the revelation of the mysteries. It is by these, you see, that the mind of God is open to us. Because the intent of God always was to be incarnate. To make his appearance clothed upon... In human flesh. Uh, We we actually sing a Christmas carol to that effect. Uh, Clothed in flesh the Godhead, He, Hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, that's the meaning of the term. God with us, God incarnate, God visible. That's why when he was resurrected from the dead, he said, touch me, handle me. And here he is, the Christ, who desires to be touched and handled. Having risen from the dead as God incarnate, God indestructible, God triumphant, God victorious. He wants to be touched handled. He wants to not be a mystery and a phantom. He wants to be known because it is in the knowing of Him that we are transformed from the glory of the flesh to the glory of the spirit man. We are changed from one glory to another. First Corinthians 15 tells us that there's a glory to the natural man But there's a superlative glory to the spiritual man. The glory of a natural man in his youth is his strength. But the glory of a man older and in the spirit is wisdom. And the wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. No man may be said to be wise who does not fear the Lord. Amen? Now, we are facing enormous challenges in the earth at this time. And no constituency of humankind is facing any greater challenge than the church itself. In the United States, by its uh, decision to enter the political arena, which had been a thing going on since the 1950s. Billy Graham was the first to lead the church into the political arena, the evangelical church. And culminating now with an across-the-board and total support of the present president, who is by every count, according to scriptures, the basest of men the most vulgar and contemptible of men. He is the champion of the evangelical church. The evangelical church has lost its moral compass and it's lost its message. Now, don't for a moment think that the message of the gospel was the property of the evangelical church because it refused to embrace the Holy Spirit. And it's fallen into an abyss that is created itself by its refusal to embrace the Holy Spirit. Because what it was left to was logic and all of the pitfalls of logic, which is to look to the natural world for an understanding of the things of God. And in that sense, it domesticated the scriptures and has become as powerless and as helpless as it has become. So it naturally looks to the political arena for validation and for empowerment. Now, the nation hates the church. The United States hates the evangelical church because it sees it as hypocritical, having having embraced the politics of a party that seems paralyzed by a man of lawlessness. That ought to tell us something. So the, the evangelical church, like the Roman church, is in a state of full retreat. It's lost its way, it's morally bankrupt, and it has no message. Its leaders call the, the President of the United States, they call him Cyrus, when he's more like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and they're bold and proud about it. I mean, this is, none of this is secret. on the web, when you interview them, when you see them on television, that's the nonsense they're putting out. And there will come, there will come a ferocious backlash of the most virulent political sort against the, the evangelical church, just like there's coming to be one against the Roman church and their leaders will scatter and the people will be like sheep without shepherds. And God said prophetically, I will take the sheep out of the hands of wicked shepherds and I'll give them to those who have God's heart. There is an enormous harvest but harvest is never of newly planted seed. It's nothing to harvest. Harvest is a fully ripened grain. And in the season of the ripening, Jesus said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. But the preface to that was this. Jesus saw the people and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. The shepherds have abandoned the sheep in pursuit of their own ambitions. And in fact, they herd the sheep toward political parties so that they can exercise influence over the politics of a nation. The people are like sheep, sheared to the skin by wicked shepherds. They are harassed and helpless. But the sound of this message, of the fatherhood of God and of sonship, will rescue lost identities even by the establishment of fathers to tend the house of God. Because the house of God never was a building. The house of God always was a family. And families are headed by fathers or families are fatherless. And not families at all. So this message is a clarion call. Brother Sleeman, this is the next round. This is the next shining forth of the light. They came here so that they could enter in and possess something else. This was not the end of the journey. (coughs) Your message was, we all belong to the same father. We are brothers and sons. Now the ordering of the house of God has come. And the people will find their way to the Zion of God and walk in the light and not be in the darkness, not be deceived and plundered. No longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. The people have an ear to hear. The people have a heart to know. Is there no balm in Gilead? Are there no physicians there? Why then are not the wounds of my people healed? This is the message of the healing. There is the throne of God. From the throne of God there flows a river of life. And on both sides of the river are trees who bring forth their fruit in their season, and the trees are for the healing of the nations. Listen, there will be a time when that reality fully comes to the earth, but until it does, the type and shadow of it is now come. Because wherever we sit in the authority of Christ, There is the throne of God, for we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now that, the word heavenly realms has multiple applications because there are multiple concepts associated with the heavenlies. One is heaven itself. Another is the realm of the demonic. Another is the physical heavens over the earth. But yet another is seated in the eternal authority of the living God. That's the heavenlies. How else would we be seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus now while our seats are in these seats? No, it's a position of authority. It's the authority of his throne. It's the authority of his sovereignty. And when you when you're seated on the throne of God, because your authority is legitimate, you're seated with him. Therefore, your authority is legitimate because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So if you're seated in the earth in his authority, you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. So heavenly is there doesn't mean the realm of of, that we commonly think of as heaven itself, but rather something beyond the heavens. Did not Jesus ascend to the highest of the heavens? Did he not ascend to fill beyond the heavens? That's a reference to the eternal. You're seated in the eternal, which means, and the word seat, the word cathedra, from which we get the word cathedral. It's a seat of authority. When you occupy a seat of authority, the authority itself is the question. Is there appropriate authority? The claimant of authority, does that person have an actual right to claim that authority? And if Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, it's been given to me, question is, who gave it to him? The one who is beyond creation. The one who is Lord of all. Seated with him, when we are seated with him in the heavenly realms, we are seated in his eternal authority, which spans the domains of heaven and earth which are all there is in creation. To the heavens and the earth, that's all there is in creation. When we're seated with him in that authority, then we are on the throne of God because that authority, the throne, you see, is a symbol of authority. The very word, cathedra, is a placement of authority, a positioning in authority. It's not necessarily a stool or a a bench. It's not the symbol that confers the authority. The symbol is merely the symbol of the existence of authority. It's the commissioning that establishes the authority of which the seat is the symbol. You see? It's the commissioning That is the symbol of authority. The seat, uh, excuse me, the the commissioning is the, the actual basis of authority. The seat is the symbol of it. So when God said of Jesus in the second Psalm, I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. David was prophesying that Jesus would come as the Lord of heaven and earth while he was on the earth. And when we have been received into Christ, we have been placed positionally in creation in divine authority which exceeds creation. So when you, when you are moving around in the earth in divine positioning, in the placed in the authority of Christ, you're seated on the throne of God. And what comes out of the throne of God? A river, a river of life. What is the river representative of? The word, the water of the word. From the throne of God, from your position of authority, you decree what God is saying. And it supports trees of life whose roots go down into the substrate of this water. The people in the sphere of your authority are like trees along the along the riverbank, along the course. And They bear their fruit in their season. When they're at work, when your sons, when the spiritual sons are at work, when they're at home, when they're amongst the neighbors, they're bearing fruit for their healing, for the healing of the nations. For you are the light of the world. Now, there will come a time when the great white throne actually appears in the earth. And we'll see the picture of this in a different setting, in a different garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but we'll see the fullness of it. But until then, the type and the shadow of the eternal is already in time and space. So let me talk to you a moment about types and shadows. And I want to interlace, so I'm doing a lot of things here about... Thank you, Marius. Uh, I'm doing a lot of things here in the nature of defining terms. Believe it or not, I want to get to an application that is sorely um, in need of revisiting. The application is how you defeat the devil clothed in the armor of God. And I want to look at, if time will permit me, I want to get there to that applicational model. Because most of our understanding of the armor of God has been stuck in a time warp. Since we were little kids, wearing cardboard cutouts with the armor of God. When we were children, we understood as children. We thought as children, we acted as children. But when we become mature, we ought to update. Let me give you just at at shutter speed, let me open and close the aperture. Because I hope to get to to show you something of the armor of God and why these definitions, and then the overarch in which these definitions uh, that these definitions help us to apprehend overarch such as the authority of Christ, um, how that in fact puts you back on track. It's not magical formulas. It's coming back to the understanding of the original intent and inhabiting it as your inheritance. Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's one that didn't take a whole week's Bible class study. We just sort of said that. So again, at shutter speed, because I hope to unpack this in much greater detail down the way. Your feet are the first... uh, part of your body to touch the earth. And usually it's the heel to toe that you walk. So your enemy lies in the grass to bite your heel. He will bite the heel of the sun and the sun will crush his head. When your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They become the weapon. Lamed, wa and mem means to destroy the authority that establishes disorder. So the prince of peace is armed with the authority to Destroy that which establishes disorder. You were destined, you were destined to have your enemy under your feet. So, your foot, the gospel of peace, is not a gospel of compromise, it is not a gospel of accommodation, it is a gospel of triumph and conquest. To destroy the authority that establishes disorder. For this reason, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. And your feet are designed to display the sovereignty of the authority that you represent over all that opposes your king and his Kingdom all of it, the entire realm of darkness. The word peace, and therefore the gospel of peace, is a military term. Pacification is a term of war. To pacify an enemy is not to give him everything he wants so he'll leave you alone. To pacification, in a military sense is to degrade the ability of your enemy to resist you. I'll say it again. Pacification in military terms is to degrade your enemy's ability to offer any resistance to your authority. Shall I say it again? <laughs> Your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the intent is that you so overwhelm your enemy with the authority that you represent that he has no ability to effectively resist you. That's what I want to talk about in this series. Who are you? Who are you? Why were you created Why did God put you here? You suppose for a moment He would have put you here and left you abandoned to the devil? By no means. He put you here equipped to be the carrier of His presence, He put you here as the vehicle for His own incarnation. So if the enemy were to triumph over you, the enemy indeed would triumph over God incarnate. What an absurd notion. But Adam lost it for us. And a culture came into being as a consequence of that, that although the enemy was actually defeated in Christ, the culture largely has remained from Adam. So the prosecution of uh, the victory of Christ was left to the church. Ephesians tells us that. That God's intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to principalities and powers in the heavenly realms which he accomplished in Christ and establishes through you. And you are his feet to have dominion over all the works of the devil. Anything short of that is that which falls short of our mandate in the earth. But you will not hear my messages become that of what you have to do and how you have to hold your mouth when you speak, and all these secret words and handshakes and the like. No, we will reveal, we'll pull back the veil and reveal to you what was accomplished in Christ, and we'll discover you in Christ. man. <laughs> I've been waiting two years to preach these messages. <laughs> Unfortunately, it probably is like drinking from a fire hydrant. So I want to define some terms here <clears throat> because I intend to use them. And again, that was that was the uh, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace at shutter speed. It's just a, a snap. That's where I want to get. I want to be able to show you how. The book of Ephesians essentially culminates with the discussion of the effective workings of the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ to not only overthrow the enemy in your life personally, but to dismantle every conceit and every construct that the enemy has developed by which to entrap humans in in the minds of their souls. And I hope even that, to get beyond that, and talk about actually evicting the enemy from places that he is occupied in our thinking. Again, in these last two years, I've been awakening early in the mornings and digging out, going to I feel like um, like the, the dwarfs with the snow white off to work we go in the mines. <laughs> I feel like I've been, I've been going down with the pick and shovel and mining in the scriptures. But on the other hand, I've also been... Uh, I've, I've spent much of these two years working with... extensively working with the leadership of our house in the United States. And um, I have seen... There have been at least 150 just miraculous transformations of people's lives where people struggled. They felt like they were under this low ceiling and could not break through. Uh, these weren't people who were who were not going on in the Lord. They were going to go on. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. But they were hitting a ceiling and Things were routinely overthrowing them. They felt just stymied beyond a certain point. And so the Lord began to introduce me to the practical applications of the things I'd been studying and, and that have been re- primarily that have been revealed to me. I just made myself available and lo and behold, things fell out of the heavens. <laughs> it works like that. And then there came the time of application, and I'm I'm watching. And I asked the Lord at one point, because it was really not my intent to spend my time doing that. I asked Him; it was quite obvious that my time was fully subscribed to for doing that. And uh, I asked Him, "Well, what? Why? I mean, is this a directional change?" And He told me it would be for for a time to teach me some. Some of the administration associated with these messages, and um, but that his main reason was he was preparing a people to display his glory in the earth. So, the first term I wish to define is the term faith. Faith. Faith and for obvious reasons. It's it's how we transition into this understanding and how we occupy the understandings of things that will be revealed to us. The word faith is the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And in Hebrews, Chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now faith, and the word there is pistis. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, by which the fathers obtained a great testimony. And then it goes on, and I'll have further to say about that. I want to bring in, the I think it's about the third or fourth verse, that says, For whoever comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, we have heard nothing short of an absolute perversion of that scripture in terms of its application. Because we've been told, you see, what that means is believe God for something you want and show to God by a token of a demonstration that you really believe, give some money. In fact, give some money to the ones who are saying, give some money. It's sort of like priming the pump. And God will give you back in kind, but in abundance, more than what you sowed. Listen, these are nothing short of wicked perversions. The only ones who have benefited from these Gospels are the propagators. The rest of the people have not benefited from these things. Because you as the sons of God, God will give you bread if you need bread. He says even evil fathers do that. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. What about me? So God supplies what his children need. He doesn't give you a stone if you ask for bread. He doesn't give you a serpent if you ask for fish. Evil fathers wouldn't do that. To make the children beg for their bread is unconscionable. And that entire structure is falling down and rapidly. But in the place, you see, God is bringing back the clean, whole, accurate understanding of what these things mean. Because faith has been limited to that application when the purpose of faith is actually that you might enter into God's rest. You know why you say yes? Sure. You know why? Because you've always known that was the right thing. But don't take my word for it. I mean, that's just your initial threshold reaction. And I'm saying with you, amen. Even if you don't know what the reality is, you know it wasn't the other. And now that you heard this without any proof, which I'm about to lay out to you so thoroughly that you will never again believe this wicked doctrine. Because in the place of what is real, you'll have no need for that. So, the word faith is the Greek term pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And it means an unshakable belief in a thing, an unshakable belief in a thing. Now, an unshakable belief in a thing, this was not, this word pistis or faith was not a religious word. It was an ordinary Greek word. They used the word faith before the BCE, before the Christian era. They use it for ordinary things. For example, people had faith in their citizenship because their citizenship involved a belief in a God. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. If you belong to the city of Ephesus, you belong to Diana and the temple of Diana and the rule of the city. So where we get the word for citizenship. We get the word, uh, or from that, from the word polis, P-O-L-I-S, we get the word citizenship. It's so where we also get the word politics, population, policy, right? It was, there was no such concept as uh, individual rights. You were part of a package deal because your support, Your identity, your well-being were tied up in your citizenship. And it was a corporate thing. I'll expand on that later. So to have faith in your city was a common thing. In fact, it was a practical, practiced thing. So faith then has to have a belief structure to it. Well, what is the belief structure that underpins our application of faith? Faith, by the way, is not in the scriptures, in, Ephesia, uh, excuse me, in, um, in Hebrews, it's not just the word faith. It is the word faith toward God. That's an elementary doctrine. You remember that from one of the times back? Faith toward God. That's for our purposes... That distinguishes the understanding of faith from a citizen of a city in Greece, in ancient Greece, to our relationship to God, faith toward God. Now, faith toward God had two, uh, the the word pistis uh, required that you must believe that God is and that God rewards those who diligently seek him, says so. Now, faith toward God is not an existential belief in the existence of God. You actually are directing your faith toward one in whom you already believe. Faith toward God. So what then is your understanding of faith? your faith toward God? What are you hoping for, to achieve, to have? to foundationally lay hold of in regards to God. That it is that he is your father. So whoever comes to God must believe that God exists as your father. Number one. And number two, that he will reward you if you diligently seek him. right. Now, if you are to be rewarded, if your search is to be rewarded, when do you have the reward of your search? When you find the thing you've been searching for, right? I mean, you may find other stuff and that's just to the good. If you're looking for gold and you find diamonds, nobody's going to argue that that was a good outcome. But until you find gold, you haven't found what you are looking for. So the reward is a one-to-one correlation to what you're seeking. If you diligently seek him, when do you have your reward? When you find him. He says, for you will find me when you will search for me With all your heart. You know the scriptures. So the two bases of pistis, the two bases of faith are, number one, coming to God as your father, and number two, the certainty, the certainty that your search will be rewarded by him showing up in such a way that you know it's him. Alright? So that's pistis. Underpinned by those two principles. Because faith is, pistis is a belief in the existence of a thing. And in fact it's related to, It's this concept is related to a word uh, that I'll, I'll unpack a little bit further here. Uh, The word epistemology, which, as you're probably familiar with that in a scientific context, an epistemology is the basis of proof of your assertions. So we might say we're, we're exploring the epistemology of faith, which is, by the way, a contradiction in terms, inasmuch as we think of faith as not being scientific. But if we use the term strictly, epistemology, we're looking for that on which we may stand both in belief and practice. Right? That which, on which we stand by belief is that God exists as our Father. And when we pursue Him as our Father... Will discover his fatherly nature. That's our foundation of belief. Now, it says, "Then faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for." Now, the word "substance" is the Greek term "hupo," h-u-p-o, "hupo," stasis. S-T-A-S-I-S. Hupostasis is a compound word. Hupo means under. And stasis is a state or a posture. So hupostasis, hupostasis is substance. Under, the way you stand under. Sub means under. Stance is posture. That's the Greek word. It's not a reference to material things. It's a reference to a posture that you adopt based upon the principle on which you stand. Should I say it again? Hoopa means what? Stasis means what? Stance or posture. That's sub stance. It's the way you stand under. It's the way you posture yourself under the belief that God exists as your Father. And when you search for Him with all your heart, you'll find Him. Now, hypostasis. Is related to a term called tatimi. T I T H E M I. Tatimi. Now that word frequently occurs in the scriptures. Tatimi. Tatimi defines the way you are postured. Tatimi describes your posture. Now your posture even though it says stance, your posture is one of lying prostrate. Tatimi means to lie prostrate. To lie down as if you are dead. To lie down in total vulnerability, and might I say, this is the posture of rest. This is the posture of rest. This is how you enter his rest. You lie down as if you are dead. You lie down as if you are asleep. Not tossing and turning in your sleep, but as if you have come to rest. Come to rest in what? Yes, absolutely. This is your epistemology and it manifests itself in a total relaxation because you so believe it. You stand as it were, except you're lying down, in this posture. Because you believe that God exists as your Father and you believe that you will find him because you are searching for him with all your heart in as much as he has the integrity of showing up because it's related to his nature. So then there's another word that goes with hypostasis. Well, another word that goes with pistis, hypostasis, and tatimi. It's another word, and this word is histemi. Histemi, H-I-S-T-E-M-I, and it means to stand up, to stand up. We get the pharmaceutical word histamine from the word histemi. When the body is in an environment of allergens, Because it's debilitated, um, it's weak, it's offering no resistance. It is vulnerable. And when it's attacked by allergens, it secretes water, fluid, to cushion the vital organs. And pharmacists have figured out ways... To limit the production of water, so that the airways and the other organs aren't uh, the affected, parts are not blocked entirely, but they are protected. These are called; these drugs are called antihistamines. To limit the production, so you still can function, but be protected. So here is the story. When you have this unshakable belief that God exists as your father and that you're sure to find him when you seek him and you lie down, you come to rest in that reality, you're totally vulnerable to your enemy. But that's when God stands up in your circumstance. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> Otherwise the rest of the passage, Hebrews, Hebrews 12 makes no sense. Because it was not talking ever about getting, getting stuff. The fathers who earned for themselves a great reward weren't asked They died without seeing it. They weren't asking God for stuff. If they were, they never got it. They didn't see it. That's actually what it says, isn't it? I'm I'm going to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, I'm sorry. Hebrews 11. The chapter on faith. Now read this with the understanding you've been given and see if it doesn't make sense for the first time. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We weren't there to see it. We believe in God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. This is your access into the mind of God. This is your access into that realm where you live in this realm from that realm. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and though and through it, he being dead still speaks. How does any of this relate to? Believing God for new stuff. It doesn't. It's an absolute disconnect. Contextually, that understanding is simply bogus. When you put back this understanding into it, all the lights come on. Because God will never leave your soul in hell nor allow the Holy One to see corruption. He'll stand up even in death and raise you from the dead as the quintessential representation of the doctrine of faith. Jesus committed himself to God. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. And with that, he he went to the cross. He was not frantic on the cross. He was administrating the kingdom, forgiving people their sins. And allowing people to join him in paradise and and the like. He wasn't panicked. The only time he panicked was when when he thought God had, when his humanity pushed through. And then he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. Abel offered... To God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Isn't that the faith that overcomes death? We used to sing about things like that. Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. This is it. And so on. I encourage you to read the rest of of that chapter. It is by faith, you see, that we enter God's rest. Now, here I want to here I want to talk just a little bit about um, an antithesis to enter into to entering into God's rest. What happens when we don't choose to enter God's rest? A fact that is only uh, possible through faith. So, God spoke of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And he said that they fell in the wilderness because of Two things. Unbelief and disobedience. But the word is the same. It's the word apathia. Apathia. It's where we get the English word apathy. And it works out this way. That after 40 years, every day, seeing the goodness of God, multiple times and in multiple ways each day, they saw him in the form of a pillar of cloud that air conditioned the desert for them and shielded them from the searing heat of the desert. At night, the bitter cold, was turned away by a pillar of fire that warmed them. God air conditioned and heated the desert for them for 40 years. I was in that area some years ago and you need air conditioning in the desert and you need need heat in the desert. And every morning for six mornings out of seven, they got up and food was on the ground. He even brought the word out of Christ to them, water out of a rock, (laughs) saying. That went by very quickly. He brought the word through Christ to them in the wilderness in the form of water out of the rock. And they still didn't believe. Now, their disbelief, their unbelief was not a sudden thing. Their unbelief was characterized by apathy. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow. I'll get around to it. Yeah, yeah, I know. But don't bother me today, I've got other things. That's why the scriptures say, today, that's the only context in which it makes sense. Today, if you will hear his voice. Do not be apathetic. Enter in. Possess it today, while it is called today. Because if put it off and put it off and put it off, eventually God will conclude that you are rebellious. You cannot be trusted. Apathy runs its course with God. He is merciful, but there comes a time when he is not any longer patient because of the repetitive behavior of consistently rejecting the manner in which he appears day by day and night by night. That is why Jesus awoke and went to meet with the Father morning by morning. For morning by morning you awakeneth my spirit. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Enter in while it's called today. Revelation, Revelation comes at the dawn of a day. As I was flying from Houston or from Dallas to Dubai a few days ago, as we were flying at 35,000 feet, you could see the sun coming up over the horizon from 35,000 feet while the land below us was still in darkness because my elevation was a prophetic symbol that I was already in a new day. And I could see the new day while the people below me were still in darkness. So when you are in an elevated position, when God lifts you up, when God tells you, come up here and sit with me, and I'm showing you what I'm doing in this day, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God will judge it. Eventually, by the repetitive behavior, God will conclude that you're apathetic. And he'll attribute to you both unbelief and disobedience. Pistis, faith. Massive thing. And guys have trivialized it in the hope of some tawdry gain, when this is the doorway by which we enter into God's rest. You know, the reason that some of these treasures have not been opened before is because God waited, as he did in the days of Noah, till a man stood up and and said, let thy will be done. And that man today is Christ. Christ in you will call you up to the mountain of the Lord in the day of the Lord while it is called today. Oh, my beloved brethren, today, if you hear these things, you may may not know how to unpack them. That will come. But today, say yes. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart.